today on Let the Bible Speak. Human languages tend to change with time, but the language of heaven does not. Why it's important that we learn to speak that language. And welcome to Let the Bible Speak. Thank you for joining me for the program today. I'm glad you're here to study the Word of God for a few moments. Words are very important. They convey meaning. And if they are correctly and precisely chosen, they allow us to accurately communicate with one another. And that's a wonderful thing. But if we're careless with our words or we choose the wrong words, great confusion can result. People might be misled because someone didn't use the right language to convey a thought or a concept. The languages of the world are very unique, and words within each given language have a specific meaning. And sometimes those meanings become lost in translation. There's a story in the Old Testament about God's people losing their ability to speak in the language of God. It's recorded back in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, and I want to read verses 23 and 24. Here the Bible says, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. The people of God committed a grave sin that resulted in their losing their uniqueness the language of God became corrupted by the language of paganism. The Bible says that they spoke the language of Ashdod because they had established fellowship with these pagan nations. Well, did you know that that language is still alive in the world today? Very much so. In fact, many Christians speak it quite fluently. I'll explain in a moment after a song from the congregation. Sweet music. 
was about 400 BC, and it had been about 100 years since the Jews had returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian exile. Nehemiah was appointed governor by the Persian king Artaxerxes. He set out to rebuild the broken walls of their beloved city and restore the true worship of God. And a great revival took place. He led the people to confess and turn from their sins and rededicate themselves to the Lord. They agreed to be a holy people and separate themselves to God. This meant that they were to remain separate from the foreigners around them. They were not to intermarry with other nations and become polluted by the sin and the idolatry and the evil around them. For example, on the day the new wall was dedicated, the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 1, that on that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Well, all was going well for a time until Nehemiah had to go away on official business. Now, the Bible didn't tell us exactly how long he was gone, but it was long enough for the people to go astray. In Nehemiah's absence, the temple was forsaken, the service of God was once again corrupted and profaned, and when Nehemiah returned and saw what had happened, he was quite angry. And once again, he set out to purify the nation. Now, one of the things that Nehemiah found that so greatly upset him was that the Jews had married pagan women. They had directly disobeyed God and married outside of their own nation, their own religion. Now, God forbade his people from marrying pagans all the way back to the time that they inherited the land of Canaan. God did not allow them to marry the Canaanites for one reason, because of the evil influence that their wives would have on them. Well, that still happens among the people of God today. Now, today, the borders of the kingdom of God transcend national or international boundaries. It doesn't matter whether you marry someone of this nation or that nation or some other ethnicity. That's not wrong. But you see, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom today. We are spiritual Israel, and we are spiritually set apart from those who are not in Christ Jesus. And that simply means that uh, we're not to have a communion, a spiritual communion or fellowship with those who are not in Christ. Now, sometimes a Christian will marry a non-Christian with good intentions of bringing their unbelieving husband or wife to Christ, and sometimes that happens. But let me warn you, more times than not, it works the other way. And in time, they end up giving in to the worldly values of their spouse. Their faith just slowly erodes, and they end up either weak spiritually or unfaithful to Christ altogether. I've seen it time and time again. Well, that's exactly what happened to these Jews in Judah. They married pagan women, and the Bible says that it wasn't long until they didn't even talk like Jews anymore. They married women from Ashdod, and instead of the women of Ashdod learning to speak the Jews' language, these Jewish husbands instead learned to speak the language of Ashdod. Not only that, the Bible says they forgot their own language. It says they could not speak in the language of the Jews any longer. The Bible says that Nehemiah contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? So reads Nehemiah 13 verses 25 through 27. 
Now there's an important lesson in that for us today. Just as God expected the Jews to be a holy and separate people then, He expects spiritual Israel, His church, to remain separate today as well. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. He wrote, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Well, that's not only true when it comes to heathen idolatry. It's true in regard to any kind of false religion or false way of life. The Bible repeatedly warns us that there will be false teachers who promote false doctrines, false religions. There will be counterfeit churches. And to compromise with such is not only dangerous, it's wrong. And one of the ways we compromise, one of the ways compromise begins is in how we speak. When we lose our ability to speak the language of heaven. Now there are many false doctrines in the religious world today. Not only are they not taught in the Word of God, they're contrary to what is taught, and they result in people being carried away from the truth of apostolic Christianity. But because many Christians don't heed the warning and compromise with error, they begin speaking the language of the religions around them instead of the language of God which we read in the Bible. You simply cannot go wrong by calling Bible things by Bible names. That, perhaps as much as anything, will keep you true to the Word of God when you learn to communicate using God's language, when you speak simply of biblical things in the way the Bible speaks of them. It's when our language concerning those things starts to change, our attitudes toward those things can begin to change. When Christians speak the language of Ashdod, they convey false concepts and erroneous doctrines to others, and they begin to believe those doctrines and concepts themselves as time goes on. Now, the Bible teaches that Christians are to use Bible language to express biblical concepts. In fact, that's a command of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, the word oracles means an utterance or something spoken. So Peter is simply saying, if a man speaks, he is to speak as God has spoken. Now, friend, words are important, and we're to use them and choose them very carefully. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now he's talking about the apostles having received the Holy Spirit who revealed the truth of the gospel to them so that they then, by inspiration, could communicate it unto the church, unto all of us. So he says, we've received the Spirit of God. The apostles had received the Spirit of God. He inspired them. He revealed these things to them and inspired them so they could communicate them. Now listen to him in the next verse. He says, which things? What things? Those things that they had, had revealed to them through the Spirit. Those things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, the Holy Spirit chose the words that the apostles used. 
The Holy Spirit inspired the apostles and the prophets who gave us the scriptures with the very words God wanted used to convey His will to men. So words are significant. And every word in the original text of Scripture is there for a reason. They're all significant. There aren't any insignificant words in the Word of God. Not only that, it's interesting and significant that Christ came at the time that He did and that He was born into the world of that time. That's a wonderful study that will build your faith if you look at the intertestamental period and the condition of the world when Jesus was born. The language that His apostles wrote the New Testament in was Koine Greek which was the common everyday tongue in the Roman Empire of Jesus' day. Now, scholars are able to go back and study and read from that language today, but it is not a modern language that is changing such as English is today. Uh, today, English means, some words in English mean different things than they did uh, even 50 years ago, but certainly a few centuries ago. Uh, some people find it very challenging to read works such as Shakespeare and so forth because of that old Elizabethan English. And we don't speak like that today, even though we still speak the English language. There are words that meant something 200 years ago that don't carry that same meaning today. But it's not that way with the ancient Greek language. And what that means is the words penned by the apostles 2,000 years ago have the same meaning today that they did then. That's God's providence and His wisdom in revealing His Word. And it goes to show how important words are and their usage to God. So we need to be very careful that we don't play fast and loose with the Word of God and speak in a way that injects human reasoning and man-made doctrine into the text of God's Word. Now with that said, there are many, many things that people say in religion today that simply are not found in the Word of God. They're not even parallel to what is taught in the Bible. They're in many cases contrary to the Bible, and these sayings and sometimes cliches help propagate many a false doctrine that is held to in the so-called Christian world today. What is the modern language of Ashdod? Well, let me give you just a few examples. First, some speak the language of Ashdod when it comes to how people are saved, when it comes to their language concerning salvation. You hear Christians today talking about accepting or inviting Jesus into your heart. It's so common to hear someone say, if you want to be saved, simply ask Jesus to come into your heart and save you, or accept Jesus and make Him your personal Lord and Savior. You hear that so often from popular evangelists and religious literature and just among religious people today that you would think you could find several verses of Scripture where people are told to do that very thing. But my friend, that's Ashdotic language. That's the vernacular of denominational evangelists of modern times, not the language of the apostles. The book of Acts is a record of the apostles preaching the gospel to the world beginning at Pentecost. And there are several times in the book of Acts where we read about people being saved from their sins after hearing the gospel preached, and not one single one says that anybody was told to accept or receive Jesus into their hearts to be saved. We read in Acts 2 verse 38 where they were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. But strangely, that's not what most preachers today tell people who want to know how to be saved. We read in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 where sinners were told to repent and be converted so their sins could be blotted out. We read in Acts 8 where Simon believed and was baptized, where the eunuch of Ethiopia confessed that he believed in Christ as the Son of God and was baptized. He wanted to be baptized because Philip had instructed him to be baptized. Saul was told in Acts chapter 9, as he later recounts in Acts 22 verse 16, to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 
We read where Cornelius was told by Peter to be baptized in Acts 10. He and his house were commanded to be baptized in water. Lydia believed Paul's preaching and was baptized. And the Philippian jailer was told to believe on the Lord and the same hour of the night was baptized, both in Acts chapter 16. The Corinthians in Acts chapter 18 believed and were baptized. But nowhere was anyone told to simply accept Jesus into their heart to be saved. Someone says, but isn't that what we're doing when we are saved is accepting the Lord? Doesn't Jesus come into our heart? Well, we're receiving Jesus and his truth, but not in the sense that such language implies. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 3 and verse 17 that Christ comes to dwell in the Christian's heart by faith. But that occurs when a person submits to Christ, obeys his will. That's what faith results in. That's what faith is, what it does. There's not a single word in any of the accounts of the preaching of the gospel where someone asked, what must I do to be saved, where they were told to just simply ask the Lord to come into their hearts. The Lord takes up his abode and reign within our hearts when we are united with him in faith, repentance, and baptism, according to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, and other passages. If we want to speak the language of the apostles and of the Holy Spirit, we can talk of one believing on the Lord, Acts 16, verse 31, being baptized into Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27. Uh, we can speak of one obeying the gospel, Romans chapter 10, and verse 16, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. But you see, quote, accepting Christ into one's heart, end quote, as though Christ can simply be prayed into one's heart and life, is the language of Ashdod. We also hear the language of Ashdod when it comes to the church. I suppose the word church is one of the most misunderstood, misused, misapplied words in all of the Bible. It's used by most people to refer to a building or a place or a denominational organization, ecclesiastical organization, and so forth. But the Bible uses it in very particular ways. It's used in only two general ways, two major ways, and you might say three if you want to become more specific. Uh, first of all, it is used to describe the spiritual relationship of all who have obeyed the gospel unto God. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which simply means called out or an assembly. In this sense, it means all people who have been called out of the world and into a new relationship with Christ through faith in and obedience to the gospel. It is not a worldwide organization. Rather, the word church, when used in this universal sense, is merely a description of those who have been saved from their sins, and it expresses this unique and exclusive spiritual relationship to God through Christ. When the Bible sometimes speaks of the church of God or the church of the firstborn, those are all descriptions of all those who are saved, called out of the world, saved in the Lord. The word church also refers to a local body or local assembly of believers. In Romans chapter 16, verse 16, Paul said, The churches of Christ salute you. Well, it's not talking there about some worldwide organization. It's merely describing congregations of like faith throughout the world who come together in the name of Christ, each one, or according to his word, to function as a body of believers, to worship and serve together. It never refers to a building. We hear people today talk about going to church. We can go to the assembly. And I suppose since the word church can mean assembly, we could use that phrase in that way. But when people talk about going to church, uh, it's almost as though the church is simply a separate organization or a building that they go to from time to time. 
And I think that's a misunderstanding of all that the word church implies. It's led to a lot of false concepts that people have about the church and their their uh, participation in the church, their relationship to the church. You see, when I obey the gospel, when I'm baptized into Christ and I am forgiven of my sins, the Lord adds me to the church, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 47. I become a part of the church by essence of my salvation. And then I'm to assemble with the local church uh, on a regular basis, every first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, Hebrews 10, verse 25, in order to worship with that church and join with that church in its work and in its worship and fulfilling its mission. We need to understand that. You know, sometimes I hear people talk about uh, church of Christ doctrine, but the Bible doesn't use that kind of language. There's the gospel, there's the doctrine of Christ, there's the truth, and every church of Christ is to preach and practice that doctrine, but it's not church of Christ doctrine. Or people say, he's a church of Christ preacher. No, he may preach among the churches of Christ, but you see that kind of language concerning the church is Ashdodic. And then finally we hear the language of Ashdod when it comes to preachers and preaching. Do you ever hear the preacher called a pastor? Well, that's usually not correct. A pastor is synonymous in the scripture with an elder, and there's a difference between the work of an elder or pastor and the work of a preacher, teacher, or evangelist. Not only that, but elders or pastors are always spoken of as a plurality of men in a congregation, not one man who stands and preaches. Or do you hear people call the preacher a reverend? That's the language of Ashdod. The scriptures never use such language to describe a preacher or any other man. The Lord's name is reverend or to be revered according to Psalm 111 and verse 9, but the preacher is just a man, just like any other person in the kingdom of God. He's a servant. He just does a distinct work. He's not elevated above others. But you see, when we began to use the language of Ashdod, we began to develop a false concept of who the preacher is and what his role is. We develop a distinction between clergy and laity that the Bible never makes. The Bible makes no such distinction. Are preachers to be respected? Sure, if they preach the truth, but not because they occupy a higher relationship to God, but simply because of the work they do in serving the kingdom. Let's be careful that we call Bible things by Bible names and speak the language of heaven and not the language of Ashdod.
Subscribe to our YouTube channel to see all of our past broadcasts plus extra videos including Let the Bible Speak classics all the way back to the 1960s. And get new updates, go to YouTube and search for Let the Bible Speak TV and click on subscribe. Connect with us on social media. Go to Facebook.com and search for Let the Bible Speak TV. I look forward to this half hour together from week to week, and I hope you do too. And I hope that you learn from the program that it helps you in your understanding of the Bible and in your desire to do God's will. If you'd like a free printed copy of today's lesson, we'll be glad to send that to you. Ask for the sermon, The Language of Ashdod, and your free copy will be on its way. Uh, we also have past videos and transcripts at our website, ltbstv.org. And if you will like our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can keep up with us that way. And we have a podcast, too, that if you subscribe, you can download the audio version of the sermons from week to week and listen on the go. We hope that you'll stay in touch with us through those various platforms. We hope you'll tell others about Let the Bible Speak and make a date to be back here next time the program airs. And I'll look forward to being with you at that time, if God wills. Until then, I hope you have a wonderful week ahead. And may God's richest blessing. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by the Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.